like I say, you know, lots of people can deal with it. And I thought I could deal with it. It's not all the physical stuff. People think the physical stuff is what gets you. It's not it's the mental stuff. And that's what leaves the lasting damage. I have to live with it. But then I was so depressed when I came out of the kitchen because it was everything I knew. So I had to be around it. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Burnt Chef Journal, a hospitality-specific podcast dedicated to challenging mental health stigma and conversations designed to inspire a new, healthier, happier and more sustainable hospitality profession. I'm really excited about this week's guest. Where do I begin with it? So this week is Matthew Whitfield and... I first met Matthew, crikey, six to eight years ago when I was working in food wholesale and he'd just left 11 Madison Park and uh, taken on the reins at Montague Arms in Brockenhurst. Matthew has a wealth of experience working in one, two, and three Michelin star environments, having worked with Marco Pierre White at the U Tree Inn in Berkshire, also working at the Vineyard or the Vineyard, as well as 11 Madison Park in New York as well. So he's he's got a a huge amount of experience most recently he was at montague arms and matt is probably one of the most rawest conversations i've had about experiences within hospitality and i think if you're going to listen to any episode this is the one that you should be listening to so i won't dribble on anymore i think that we'll just start the episode but if you've got any feedback on this let us know if you've learned something then get hold of us through social media channels and let myself know and we can pass that feedback on to matt as well but you know big thanks to matt for his honesty and for the courage that it's taken to speak about some of the things he's spoken about and well without any further ado let's crack on the burnt chef project is proudly sponsored by lamb western a leading provider of innovative high-quality potato products created for chefs to help operators thrive both today and tomorrow. Working carefully with sustainably-minded farmers and growers, Lamb Western provides potato solutions for every type of kitchen, from premium British chips and fries to potato shapes, wedges, and mash. To find out more, head to lambwestern.eu or search your partner in potatoes. Firstly, thank you for taking the time to be on this, but also thanks for taking the time to come up and have a conversation during that show in Southampton. Yeah. So you and I first met probably the best part of, I would say, eight years ago. Yeah, maybe it's coming up to that, I think. Yeah, maybe a little bit less, I think, maybe six, maybe. But yes, yeah, no, no, six maybe. Years. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Time absolutely flies. And it was only a brief meeting, only a brief meeting back in my days where I was trying to sell lovely local produce to you back in my food wholesale days but for those who don't know who you are obviously you've come from incredible heritage if that's the correct term I mean without trying to Mm. make people sound like they're cattle and and beef but you've worked in some incredible incredible venues I was wondering if you would be able to, to give the listeners an idea of sort of who you are so I mean firstly how long have you been in the hospitality industry well, I started when I was 14. So I started when I was still in school. I did work experience in an Italian restaurant. And then I, I got like a part-time job from that. And I carried on doing that, really. I, I Yeah, and I sort of tried to put myself off it for a bit because I wasn't really sure if it was what I wanted to do. 
and then I ended up going to Eastleigh College to study hospitality and catering. So, Big shout! Yeah, went from there really. Yeah, great college. Well, I take uh, Greg Cheeseman. I think is the lecturer there currently. Yeah, yeah, I know Greg. Yeah, yeah, good guy. Yeah, really, really nice guy. But yeah, so really I, I mean, I wasn't doing necessarily fantastic at school, but I needed certain qualifications to get into the course I wanted to, so which was a BTEC National Certificate in Hospitality and Catering. So I sort of worked quite hard in the last year of my schooling to get in there, and I got the grades. So I did that course, which was good. Yeah, it was, it was great actually. Yeah, it was really good fun. Why hospitality, other than the grades that you needed in order to get your BTEC, what was it that drew you at the age of 14 into hospitality in the first place? I just, I always cooked really. I mean, my brother's an engineer and he would always sort of work with my dad and my granddad doing that sort of thing like in the garages and stuff. And then I would always cook at home with my grandma it started off with. Yeah, that's how it started. And I just thought it was really cool and I enjoyed it. And actually at school, when I was having the talks about how my grades were looking and they weren't looking good the one thing that I was doing well in was cooking so that's one of the grades that we salvaged to try and get me something out of school and then I was advised to go to college because I think a teacher said to me it'd be good for you to go somewhere where you're high up in the group you know while you do it you know it's sort of not be one of the best but as in you know just do something you're familiar with and you enjoy doing and you, you can be really good at and excel at so so that's what I did. And then I did go through a stage at school where I tried to think about something else I wanted to do, but everything always came back to being a chef. So, Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone who said to I said when I have asked that question, yeah, do you know what? My parents really said to me, you should get into being in hospitality. <laughs> yeah. yeah, perhaps I did it as a stopgap or I found I needed some money or it was perhaps academically it was best for me, but it's... I think we're missing the trick, even that far back, missing the trick with regards to promotion of a profession of yeah. choice, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then I was always, I thought to myself, if I was going to do it, I'll try and do it the best I can. But then I had no confidence at all when I first started. So I put off going into really good kitchens for a long time, actually. It was actually the later on in my career, well, not later on, I'm not that old, but further down the line, I decided to go into really good kitchens because I was too worried about going into them. I didn't think I was good enough. What was it that was driving that? Was that something that had been said to you or was that just what was going through your head at the time? I think that because I chose to do it, I was so, it was one track mind. I was going to be as good as I could be and I was going to achieve everything I could. And I set out years ago, I think it was when I was about 15, which and I put this pressure on myself. Where it's like, I said to myself that if I don't achieve a Michelin star one day, then I would have wasted my life. That's what drove me all the time through the years and um, <laughs> it didn't really work out well for me. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I mean, well, certainly we'll come on to that. And and this conversation has come about from a frank conversation that you and I had about, you know, working in some of the, well, working in one of the best restaurants in the entire world at a three Michelin star level, mm. but the consequences of that. But before we sort of get to that stage, and this isn't any way by any means, shape or form bashing the fine dining industry or, or Michelin no, 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 in any way, shape or form. But I think that there's important lessons to be learned. And these lessons, whilst are difficult to hear sometimes, they are not unique. I mean, I, I was talking to a chap recently at a trade show who was working at three Michelin star level. And he was telling me some some stories about the impact that that had had on him. And quite severe, similarly to yourself. So I think it's important that we recognize and then we look at actually how we address that. But 
So you leave college and you move from college. And was Montague Arms your first sort of stepping into a commercial kitchen? Yeah, it was my first sort of decent, really, really good kitchen. My dad had a pub at the time, so I worked there and I worked in another pub. And then I worked in a hotel that you know made sandwiches in a hotel. And Montague's was the first real job. I think it was two rosettes at the time, which um, you know, back then I was you know, really interested in. And they were pushing to be better and everything. And it was a beautiful place. And I'd always, I sort of knew about Montesquieu's because I drove past there when I was a kid and stuff like that. So I knew it was there. And then my grandma got me a interview there. So I went there and I did a year on pastry, which was different. I, I just, I got put on there and a couple of months in the pastry chef left. So I sort of took over, not took over that I wasn't qualified enough, but I did that to the best of my ability for a year when I was, I think I was 18 at the time or 17. And then, yeah, so I did that for a year. And then a friend of mine got a job for Marco at one of his pubs, but it was the, it was his first pub. So like his return pub, which was the yew tree. So he went to work there and contacted me and said, you know, if you're interested, there's a vacancy. So I went and did a trial and yeah, it was different <laughs> to say the least. It was a tiny little kitchen. It was really, really high paced. And it was the first sort of look at, it was an aggressive kitchen. That was my first experience in that. And yeah, so I think I got paid 12 grand. I think that was, yeah, and I was, I would work whatever we were supposed to work. You just go in there and work. I think I'd, when we talk about like long, long straights in kitchens where people talk about how many days they worked, I, I specifically remember working about like 21 days with that day off, stuff like that, which was, I don't know if it was expected or not, but it was, it wasn't really questioned. You just sort of went and did it. And then the more that people would fall down or, or leave or something like that, you would have to step up again. So it became this vicious cycle, really. It's just, I did two years there. Fuck, two years. And I mean, 21 days, was that the most or was that sort of a regular occurrence where you would do m- more than sort of 10 days plus without break? I think, you know, 21 days was, was the most for me. You know, your days off would change and they would get cancelled and, you wouldn't necessarily get two days off and yeah and i mean you were called in on your days off to be bollocked as well you know it was if things weren't right you would i remember being dressed up to go out with girlfriend at the time and they i was called into the restaurant to be bollocked because i hadn't left the section properly (laughs) so yeah called me in had a go at me and then and then said to me to get out and have my day off fuck enjoy your day off hey (laughs) yeah it was it was a strange one yeah yeah, I mean, I decided to leave in the end. I was offered a promotion. I was offered the sous chef position, but I, I turned it down. I didn't want to carry on doing it. And I always, I was always putting off for so many years going to a mission style restaurant because that's what I wanted to do. But I didn't think I was good enough. So I was worried about doing it. And I was worried about how I was getting treated. And, and I just didn't know much about it. You, you just heard like bad things about it. And I thought, well, I'm not good enough. So I'm not going to try and do that. But it was what I always wanted. So. After then, I, I thought I'm going to give it a go. And then I, I think I stayed in star restaurants for 10 years after that. What about that? I mean, what did you learn about that first introduction at, when you were at the U-Tree? Like, other than the fact that you, it sounds challenging, I mean, did you have more of a fire in your belly for achieving the accolades, changing the way that they did? What were the main learnings and takeaways from that, that first experience? That first one, to, I mean... What's the situation on this? Can you sort of swear or something? Is it? Is it? Is yeah, it go ahead. You just say what you want. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, that first experience just turned me into a complete prick. In Austin. I was just this arrogant. Everybody that was there was made to believe that they were better than other places and, and, and everybody else. And all the other food that you saw was crap and it was all this. But it, I mean, that wasn't Marco. That was, that, you know, it was just like the culture in there. I mean, what we were doing was nice, but it, it was not, <laughs> you know, did not warrant that. But yeah, and it was just, I came away from it, you know, and got a real big wake up call when I went to another kitchen because I wasn't the big man that I thought I was. But it was because how it was day to day and what you had to do and how you were treated, you sort of, it rubbed off on you and you sort of were a bit of a, you know, thought you were the man, but that wasn't the case. And so where did you go after the U tree then? So you were junior Sue there for some time. So what mm. you also took part in, and you were finalist in the Rue scholarship, right? Yeah, I did the scholarship. I achieved like placing in the scholarship three times. And the last time I did it, I got to the final, which was, I think 2017, I think I went to America after that. So after the U tree, I went to Montague Arms. They had a star at this point, Matt Tompkinson. So I went there as a chef to party and then went back on pastry. I did a couple of stages between those jobs, but, you know, I just, just a bit of experience. But I thought, I love the place and, and it's got a star now. You know, they're doing great stuff. I want to go and work there. And I've heard really good things about Matt and he's a great guy, still is now. So I did pastry there for a year. And then I worked my way up and I worked all the, all the sections. And I ended up leaving as junior Sue four years later. And so I, I did that, and then I, I thought, oh, I want to try and do some other things and go to a two-star or a three-star, and I trialed it out of the Fat Duck. And it was just, I mean, it was the best place that I've been to at the time it was, but for me it was awful. I just couldn't stand it. It was just so, I don't know, I, I have to have sort of freedom when I work <laughs> and when I cook, and it's um, theirs is so regimented, which is fantastic for them. It's, it's amazing. I'm certainly not saying anything bad about the fat duck it just wasn't for me so that was like my first taste of a three star which just didn't work out and then that sort of whacked my confidence because i thought oh well i can't cut it like that and then where did i go from then i went to i was with my girlfriend at the time and she lived in brussels so i thought well if we're gonna have a relationship then i'll, I'll move to brussels so i applied for every single mission star restaurant in brussels and I heard back from three. One was a one star that wanted me to start immediately. So I couldn't do that. One was a place called Comche Soir, which was a two star. It used to be a three star. It's a two star now. They offered me a trial. And then I was offered a trial at a place called Seagrill, which was a two star. And I went there for a chef to party position. And then I trialed and they offered me a junior sous chef position. And it was a complete French speaking kitchen. So I took it. And I moved out there. And then after two months, they promoted me to sous chef. But it was, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot, maybe not loads about food, actually, but I learned quite a lot about myself there. But that, that, was, that was really hard work. That was hard, mentally hard, that was. What was it that, I mean, I've just come back from Paris, and mm -hmm. it's just different out in Europe, isn't it? Like the pace, I mean, we think mm -hmm. the pace is, over here the turning of tables from a front of house perspective the attentiveness the just the multi-skilled but also the way that one of the venues that we went to by the Eiffel Tower we my wife and I saw the owner of the business completely and utterly dressing down each of his team members in front of all the customers and you you know you're in a in a mm -hmm. cafe 
surrounded by British American customers, all tourists, and just watching this, and you're going, this is just you wouldn't expect to see that in the UK. So how was that for you? I mean, obviously it was mentally quite difficult, but what sort of things were was it that you found actually really difficult and challenging about that situation? I mean, the kitchen I was in, I mean, the head chef, so not the, the main guy, the exec chef, but the head chef was a really hard guy. He was he was almost like nobody meant anything. You were just there to do your job. And if oh, I watched people like not turn up and he just, he wouldn't even care. Like it was the one place I worked where I genuinely felt like you're sort of worthless. It was really, really hard. But I mean, the produce and everything was incredible. And it was also such a different thing. You'd have like 20 books and you'd do 150 for lunch. It was really, at T-star level, it was crazy. It was really, really strange. I mean, how we were ever ready. Or I look back on it now and I think, how did we not run out of things? It was really crazy. But then I also like, that's where I started to sort of develop speed and everything in my job. It started at Marco. Marco's, I learned a lot of butchery but whole animal butchery and everything like that and all that sort of like classic stuff which was amazing i still use that now and then i became quite i started getting my speed when i was working in brussels because we would have you know crates and crates of shellfish it was a fish restaurant so it was shellfish and everything that had to be broken down then and you would get cases of it every day so you had to and it was open lunch and dinner so that's when i sort of really started i think that's when i not started taking it seriously that was i was at montague's when i really started thinking no no i want to see what I can do but I think it was there where I thought blimey you know this is really hard it's but I do want to carry on doing it and see how it goes so yeah that was an eye-opener but yeah and it was a strange time I mean I remember when I was out there I like broke my knuckle doing something I caught it somewhere and it broke the knuckle so I went to hospital and I had a, I had a cast put on for six weeks and I wasn't there long so I didn't want to leave a bad impression so I cut it off and I went back to work my hand was black and it was, um, so I cut the cast off and I went straight back to work a couple of days later. That was on, um, yeah, I was right-handed then. So that was, yeah, it was difficult. Was it just the fact that you weren't there long or was it the impression? Because like, if I put it into terms or into different industries, you walk into, I don't know, you walk into the fire brigade or you walk into an office environment and you've got a cast on your hand they wouldn't expect you to continue doing, continue saving lives or continue writing emails if you've got a cast on your hand and it's yeah. difficult. What was it that, that led you to the point where actually you cut that cast off and thought, sure, fuck it, I'm just going to keep going anyway? Why? I mean, I was always driven by sort of, well, I wanted to like succeed and achieve, but I also, I wanted people to think good of me. I wanted to be reliable. I wanted to be somebody that was always there that everybody could rely on. And I wanted to be good at my job. I didn't want to be known for... Oh, he's off, or he's ill, or he's not anything like that. I didn't. I don't want to be known for that um, in my career. So, I would convince myself that it was always wrong to not be back at work, whatever the situation. I would always try and go back. I had a, a hernia operation when I was at Montesquieu's before I went to Brussels, you know, and I was supposed to be off for. I think it was. I can't remember. I think it was four weeks or so. I don't know what it was, but and I went back after a week and a half. So, yeah, and it's, I just made that decision because somebody walked out, I think, and I didn't want the chef to suffer. So, I, and it yeah. wasn't really on me, but I still chose to do it. Which is, is something we see quite. We did a study with Britta recently, and they were saying the results of that study show that camaraderie and friendships in hospitality are like the best that you could ever see in any sector. Like, we really do stick it out for each other. And there's that sense of belonging, there's that sense of team. 
but it's also i don't know it's one of the great things about hospitality is that you know you're there you're there side by side against your fellow man or woman and you're there doing the job that you set out to do and you don't want to put an additional pressure on the rest of your team but the way we talk about it is like we're at war and i I guess in some some (laughs) situations it feels like it right yeah 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 no no it does yeah yeah when you go into service as well (laughs) it does feel like that that's just i mean i i'm very much pro hospitality and often enough you know i can't help to think that the burnt chef project is sometimes seen as the black sheep of the hospitality industry because we're like come and work for hospitality but here are the rough edges that we just need to smooth out a little bit (laughs) i think we're starting to see a resurgence of businesses that can work to michelin level that do demand you know time and to hone your craft and to develop you know you have to be fully committed to be able to go for those things but also have that yeah. balance of understanding that culturally it needs to be right and work-life balance needs to be right mm. and you know they need to not just be a, a great accolade winning restaurant but they also need to be a fucking good employer as well so yeah. we're starting yeah. starting yeah. to see that change starting to see it mm. so Bringing us sort of more up to current, you worked at Eleven Madison Park in New York for yep. how many years? Yep. It's just over a year. I got a year visa, and then I was offered another. I think it was three year visa when I was there, and I, I turned it down. And they asked me to open Davies and Brook as executive sous chef, but then which I was going to do, and then I think it got put back or something. I don't know. It was a long time ago now, but I mean, obviously, Dimitri, the, the who the chef was. Is now at Claridge's. He's a great guy. He was my chef at Eleven Madison Park. So I was supposed to go to with him, and then it got put back and put back. So I mean, I, and I wasn't working because when I came back from America, I took I think three months off, and then I was approached about Montague's whilst I was still waiting about Davies and Brooke. So Montague's approached me, and I went and had a meeting with them and had a chat with them and, and talked about it and thought about it, and I thought I was. I was sort of at the right time for me that I wanted to start doing my own food. I felt I felt like I was sort of ready for it. And that was when I was going to try and do, you know, achieve what I've always set out to achieve. So, mm. And that's, that was the goal when I went there. And I'm keen to talk about your time at Montague's and, and obviously the, yeah, the great work that you did there. But I had a question with regards to Eleven Madison, which was that, I can't remember if it was yourself I spoke to all that time ago or someone else, but over there they were saying that the hours, rather than you working all the hours that God sends, they were sort of more set hours and that the management team Mm. would get penalized if you worked over your shift. You had to hand over within like 15 minutes of your shift finishing. Like, Is that accurate? And it was that from our conversation? It was so long ago. So when I first started there, you would start, I think it was like a double day, you would start at, I think, six or seven in the morning, but you would finish by three or four. And then if you were working in the evening, you would start at 12, I think, and then, then work through till 11 or midnight or something like that, maybe later. And then you would cross over. So you would finish service, and then you would go on the commie section and finish the, the mise en place jobs, and then, then you would be sent home by the sous chefs. So that's how that started. But then if you were on a single day, so it wasn't so... I can't remember what it was, but then some days you would do a double. So you would start early and then you would work all the way through. But then you weren't allowed into work any time before. You had to come in on the on the dot. I started working slightly differently. So they had like two teams. It was like a morning and evening team and they would have a prep team and all this sort of stuff. But then 
the work that you were given, it was like a known fact that you were given six hours of work to do in four hours. That was the fact I was, I was showing, I, I found all my knees on blast lists and everything at my time, my timing charts the other day when I brought them in for the guys to see in the kitchen. And they were just, they, they thought like, it's surely not doable. But you used to do it. But then what I would do is I would find a different way in. So I would sneak around the back of this skyscraper and, and get into a door and then go in the back door. And then I would wait. I would wait at the bottom of the stairs in the uh, dining room and I'd sneak around up the stairs. And I'd go upstairs and I would either sit in the changing rooms. And we used to obviously tie the ducks, the duck that they used to do there. But you used to have to pull all your twine and everything like that. So I would pull all my twine in the changing rooms and I'd write all my labels in the changing rooms. And then I would stuff all this twine in my pockets before I'd go in the kitchen. And I'd hide mise en place in my pockets. And then I would, as the cooks would come in on their set times, I would sort of wait for them to come upstairs and I'd cross them on the on the stairs and then go in the kitchen. And then I'd sort of hide behind a couple of chefs and get on with some work. And then they would realise I was there and it looked like I was on time. I'd already been there for half an hour. So I used to do that. Then I was moved around the sections quite quickly. and was put on the meat roast after, I think, three months. I can't remember what it was, which was great. And I, so I did all of them and then, then they promoted me to, so they weren't like legally allowed to promote me because I was on a training visa, but they promoted me to sous chef within the restaurant. So I would run the fish line and, but there was like a, a limit on um, sous chefs. We were down sous chefs when I was there. So I would pull double shifts. So I would, because they thought I was from England that I could do more. So because the shifts were longer in England than I was used to it. So you can do some longer shifts. So I would start at, sometimes start at, I think, six. And then I would do a double service. So I would do the morning, set the line up, and then we'd go into lunch service. And then I would set the line back down and bring it back up. And then the, the next lot of chefs would come in. And then I would do the evening service. So I would start about six and I'd finish about midnight. And then I would travel up to Harlem, which was about an hour and a half to go home. Shit. Did you sleep much during that time? No, no, no. God, no, no. It was awful. I'm not a big sleeper anyway, but that, I wouldn't sleep much. Yeah, I would sleep maybe four, five hours if I was lucky. And then, you know, you, you get on the trains and the pitch black and in Harlem and then all the way down to central Manhattan and start it again. But I, I sort of like, I embraced it really. I enjoyed it because one, it was like they started to really trust me, which was great. The two, I thought, if I am only out here for a year, then I don't want to go back and I don't want to regret anything. So I want to try and get everything or do everything I can. You know, it worked out for me in that sense with the work because um, you know, I get on great with them and it did amazing things for me. It really did. It was an amazing, amazing place. Did you enjoy working there? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it was good. I enjoyed like the discipline because it was really, really disciplined. Like you had to work in silence and... and the kitchen had to permanently look like it wasn't used. You'd have to polish in service. You know, if you brush something on the floor, you would have to clean the whole floor. The stuff like this where I really sort of embraced that. And I, I actually took a lot of that when I moved back to England. You know, when we were at Montesquieu's, I was a nightmare because I was trying to work like we had 60 chefs when, when we actually only had seven. And I was, yeah, it was, I was a nightmare. I did embrace that. That's something I really, it sort of, you know, I really liked it. It took some getting used to because you take a few bollockings before you can really get used to it. <laughs> if you're enjoying this week's episode, consider heading over to our website and supporting our ongoing work in destigmatizing mental illness and creating a healthier, happier, and more sustainable industry by purchasing some of our branded merchandise. 
We have a whole range of t-shirts, hoodies, chef's jackets, well-being journals, plus a whole host more available on Worldwide Dispatch. All funds raised from sales of these items go towards free-to-access e-learning content, as well as providing free support systems and help for those who may be experiencing difficulty with their mental health. I've always quite enjoyed that sort of tough atmosphere, even basic. And I'm not talking like, you know, fine dining level, but even when I was working in front of a house, just doing bars, mm. constantly mm. having to look like you're busy and like polishing, yeah. <laughs> just polishing beer pumps and stuff. Just so that when customers yeah. looked, stood around doing anything, I like that side of hospitality. There's something about that, that I think yeah. for those of us who are perverted in hospitality, quite like that to a certain degree. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that system. I don't know. Are we all a little bit unwell or, or is that actually, I don't know. There, there's something about that psychology that just, that I always find quite mm-hmm. alluring. But, I mean, how did that translate when you got back into sort of Bewley and, and Montague then? Did that go down well with your, with your team? Had you worked with them before? No, no. <laughs> so I went in there and I mean, obviously I'd worked in the kitchen before, but uh, sorry, that's not true either. I worked in the old kitchen. This was a brand new kitchen since I worked there. Obviously, I knew the owners and I knew the managers and I got on well with them. It was a massive culture shock because I came in and changed everything. And, and it's difficult to explain because I would never want to say anything remotely negative towards Matt, who was there. But his time, his time, and, and it was a different kitchen to what I worked in when I was with him. There were different, you know, it was a different people and it was a different standard. And it was, I like to think when I was with Matt, he was at his peak and he was really firing. He was, he's still one of the most talented cooks I've ever seen. But then when I went back, it was a bit like the kitchen was sort of more run by the cooks. So there was no structure. And then I, I saw things that, that used to be on the menu when I was there, but they weren't being done the way that Matt used to want to do them and stuff like this. And I thought, that's, that's a bit odd. I thought, you know, so I went in there. And just to be honest, and it's not not proudly saying, I just I upset everyone. It was I was not very pleasant, and I had a goal in my head, and nothing was going to stop me doing that. And I felt like I was the only one who really sort of cared about what I was doing when I it, that was completely false. And then more and more people left, and then I started building my own team. And I was very very lucky that a large part of my team stuck with me. My sous chef, he left as my head chef, but me and him worked together at the Driftwood in Cornwall. So he knew what I was like and he knew what I liked and and he knew how to do things that I was talking about. So if I wanted to just basic things like a puree, he would know the sort of thing that I was I wanted. So that made it a lot easier. But then I was so driven that it was, you know, I, I didn't really care. I just blanked everything else out. And I kept the same sort of discipline as we did it in, in America. And I would stop service and I'd make the guys clean the floor and clean the fronts of the fridges before we would send another table. We would work in silence. You know, I would send people home if they weren't dressed properly. Or, you know, you know, I have a sort of, I still have a thing now where you, we wear black socks in the kitchen. That's just a personal thing that I, I like. But um, the way I went about it was not appropriate. But yeah, like I say, I mean, we did some nice food. We did some cool stuff. We tried too hard in the first year. Like I had three Michelin inspections in the first year, and they're like we didn't get a star. Obviously, we were trying too hard, way too hard. The food wasn't up to it, which is fine. But then we got to, we got three rosettes in the first two months, which was great. And then yeah, and then obviously COVID hit, so it all went a bit 
pear-shaped after that, really. And then we came back after COVID and I sort of changed the style of food. I sort of almost officially just developed my style of food and what I really cared about. And I wanted the kitchen to be a bit more fun and I wanted to be a bit calmer. And, and I was so thankful that I did that. I sort of had a real, I don't want to live my life like that anymore. And um, luckily I did that and the guys started really enjoying working for me. And the guys that were there then, you know, a few of them still work for me now. I'm intrigued. I mean, to put it bluntly, you're a bit of a dick manager at that particular point because you're laser focused. Yeah. But what was it that, what, yeah. what COVID made you realize, fuck, I've got about this all wrong and I need to change the way that I behave and, and the style that we're going for? What was it? What clicked? No, I just wasn't happy. I was miserable. I was miserable for years. Really, really miserable with the jobs that I was in. I was never truly happy in the jobs that I was in. I I did a lot of jobs because I felt like I had to. I worked in a way because I felt like I had to. And even after COVID, you know, I still wasn't completely over that sort of stuff. But I did, you know, my arm, which we obviously haven't spoken about yet, but my arm contributed to it because there were certain things I couldn't do anymore. So our food became more produce flavor driven because I thought, well, I can make things taste nice. I can't necessarily make them look as crazy as I, I used to be able to. Because it got to the point where my Jake, who was my sous chef, then head chef, would come to me when I was doing a new menu. You can't do these menus because you cannot put a menu on and you're the only person who can do the food. You can't do it because even I can't do it. And you're the only one in this kitchen that can do it. You can't put that food on. And I, and I would just simply say, I don't, I don't give a shit. It's going to go on the menu. So they can either do it or I'll do it. And that's how it always happened. And I, and I would end up doing all of it because I was the only person who could do what I had in my head and, and, you know, I would do things or I would expect them to do things that was just completely unreasonable. But I didn't care. That's what I was going to do. So, Fucking hell. Like, oh, th- thank you for your honesty with this because you're probably one of the first people we've spoken to on the podcast who's actually like, yeah, do you know what? This is what happened. And, yes, I mean, it's not for me. I'm not the judge and juror of any of this sort of stuff, but it's actually quite refreshing, I think, to try and understand a little bit more about what it is that was, yes, perhaps that was the way that you were taught and the things you'd witnessed and you were reproducing. It sounds like you were so laser focused on your objective and your goal that you would have got there even if you were the only person in the kitchen, right? And and at some stages it might have felt like. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I was so, so lucky that you know Jake was with me the whole way. Uh, he was my, my sous chef, head chef. Um, you know, the, my MD would come to me and, pull me into meetings and saying like what you're doing is completely inhumane you need to stop doing this sort of thing but that was it I was just I'm going to do this and that that was that and Jake was with me and he and he supported me not necessarily agreed with how I was doing it but he he supported me because we were together on it and then it all started going (laughs) pear-shaped with with um physical so talk to me about that because that's originally the reason why you and I started speaking at the Hilton it's the first time we've seen each other in Mm. years in fact, I think I saw it. I must have seen you within your first week of starting at Montague. And, yeah, yeah. And I still remember the conversation now. I believe I was trying to say finger limes because I remembered you liked you liked your fish. <laughs> yeah, I think it was actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't forget, honestly. I'm, I'm, plagued, I'm plagued with these memories. <laughs> Just useless stuff. So you came up to me at this event and you said, you know, like, I want to have a chat with you because I've been following you. And basically my health has deteriorated quite significantly as a result of just fucking pushing and pushing and pushing for so long and so what ended up happening like how did that look and and start looking to you and what was the result of that 
So it all started when I was in America. I, I started noticing my handwriting was getting bad. I'm, I'm right. I'm right-handed. It started getting bad, like doing labels or something like that. But I, I always thought I was just rushing it, and, and that was that. And I've never had fantastic handwriting, but it was it was just getting harder to write. It was strange. But I thought, oh, well, I'm not writing very often, so that's that's why it's, that's what's happening. So um, I basically ignored it, and then. I came back to England, and obviously I was out of the kitchen for three months. So again, I hadn't even thought about it. It was it was nothing really. And then I started at Montagues, and I could do every single function what I was doing. It was just handwriting, which was a bit funny. So I avoided it. I would get people to sign things for me and use some sort of excuse. I would do things in the office where people couldn't see because my arm, my hand was doing funny things when I was writing. It was sort of like buckling. Uh, so I thought it was a bit strange. And then. I sort of thought, oh, is there something wrong? Is there something? I don't know if there is something wrong or not. I'm not sure. So I left it and left it. I think I left it for about a year. It was my first year and I just I just ignored it and ignored it. And then a couple of people noticed some things that were happening. Somebody, I, I think I was I was signing something and one of the managers was behind me. I didn't realize they were behind me and sort of said, oh, you, what's wrong with your hand? It's, it's all, why is it all buckling? So I don't know. Don't worry about it. And I think it was, I sat in an office with Jake again. And I said to him, I think there's something wrong with my hand. And he said, well, you need to go to the doctors. And I said, yeah, okay. I said, yeah, no, maybe, I don't know, maybe. He said, no, you need to because like, just just do it. I said, no, I, I, yeah, okay, well, I'll leave it at the moment. And I left it and I kept sort of saying it and it was more and more like, I think there's something is wrong. It's, it's strange. It's sort of, I can't, I can't write properly and, and all this sort of stuff. And he said, it's just, you can't carry on working the way you're working and it's, it's starting to affect you. You need to go to a doctor. So I went to a doctor and it was really, it's a really strange thing to try and under, try and explain is that, oh, are you in pain? No, I'm not in pain. Can you do this? Yes. Oh, can you do this? No. Okay. But, oh, I guess you can do this then. No, I can't do that. But can you do this? Yes, I can do that. So it was all a bit strange. So, so the first thing they did was they checked me for diabetes, uh, which was all clear. I think the first time I saw somebody, they sort of just went, well, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe just stressed or something. I said, okay. Then I went back and they, they tested me for diabetes, which all came back clear. And then I, got, I was getting really, really worried about it. I swear to my dad. So they paid me, paid for me to go private and see somebody. I was told that it could be something called dystonia, which is like a movement disorder, which is, they don't really know why it happens. It's, it can be caused by uh, extreme stress. And there was an article that I read once, and it's when you push your body to an unachievable rate for a, a consistent amount of time where your body is not capable of doing that if you do that for a consistent amount of time it can trigger something in your brain and what actually it is is is, is dystonia is like a, a condition with your brain where part of your brain doesn't allow your muscles to work properly in a certain way so i can move my fingers and everything but if i try to do a certain thing if i try to point my hand buckles so i got told that and i didn't really know anything about it so i thought okay fine well whatever i don't know what it is but I didn't really sound that serious, really. And I thought, okay, well, at least now I know. And then it went from I couldn't write anymore at all. So I started going, right, well, I'm going to start trying to use my left. And then I started noticing it when I was using a knife and using and then sharpening my knife. So then I really started thinking, you know, what the hell's going on? Because, sorry, that, uh, one thing I didn't say is that doctor said to me, well, don't worry, it won't get any worse. He said those words to me. I said, okay. And then it started getting 
a lot worse and really, really quickly. Yeah, I couldn't write anymore. And then and then my knife skills started going. I thought, this is strange. So then I started, uh, still to this point, nobody really knew what was going on. So I started ordering fish filleted and meat already prepped and stuff like that. And because I would always do that. And then people would, and then the sort of chefs thinking, strange, why is he doing that? And Jake sort of knew what was going on, but didn't. And then I would stop doing the pass because I couldn't hold a spoon properly anymore. So I would ask Jake to do the pass more. And then I got referred to a, um, a neurologist who said to me, yeah, we think it's dystonia. It can, um, it's a uh, brain condition. It's this movement disorder. I said, okay. So I was seeing any doctor I could at this time because I couldn't accept that it was a brain thing. I just, I just couldn't accept it. So, and then I got put through to a surgeon who said, it's not dystonia. It's an issue. I'm going to find out what the issue is and we're going to fix it. Um, so all this was, this was all done privately. He said to me, I think it's quite simple. You've got carpal tunnel. I said, okay. I said, okay, I've been told I haven't got carpal tunnel, but okay, I trust you. He said, so let's do, um, let's, uh, I'm going to do a carpal tunnel surgery. I said, okay. I said, fine. Yeah. He said, that, 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 that'll be the issue. I said, okay. So um, I had that done and it didn't do anything. It, so, so I had that done on the Monday, had it done. I think I went back to work on the Friday or something. So my hand was all strapped up, everything like that. It healed, made no difference at all, at all. And then something happened, which was, um, wasn't connected with this, but I damaged my thumb badly. So I had to have reconstructive surgery on my thumb where, and I had it pinned. I had a nerve release, which was connected to this. I had nerve release in my forearm as well, which they thought was the cause of it. When I damaged my thumb through the x-ray, he said, there's no way that how you've damaged this, there's no way that the joint is this bad just through this damage that you've done recently. This must have been a long thing. So, oh, that's the, that's the cause of this problem that you've got. Mm. You've got like an arthritic joint of what a sort of 70-year-old man would have, but it's on the thumb. So I thought, oh, wow, okay, that's, that's interesting because that could be the cause, you know. So he said, right, we're going to do that because – we're going to fix it. That's the issue. That I'm sure that's the issue. And I said, okay, I'm also getting like a tingling sensation down my thumb. He said, okay, where is that? And I showed him. So he cut my arm open and released a nerve and he reconstructed my thumb and he pinned it. So I had a metal rod through my thumb for about six, uh, about six weeks, two months. And then they, then they, he pulled it out. So I had movement back in my thumb and he said, oh, well, I'm not sure if it, maybe it was just that impact that you had on your thumb i thought okay well okay so anyway so i let it heal and it made no difference and actually through all this time my my movement in my arm was getting worse and worse so i couldn't cut and now, now i couldn't sharpen a knife and now i couldn't really use a knife properly in the same way as i used to i had to hold it like a claw so all the time going back to the neurologist and i've got the neurologist saying to me don't have surgery because it can make the dystonia worse but then i've got another doctor saying to me it's not dystonia i'll I'll fix it. Let me fix it. So all the time me going, you know, oh, I don't want to admit it's this brain thing. I don't, I don't want it. I don't want to have to live with that. So I'm going to go back to a surgeon. We talked about it again and, and how my movements and all this sort of stuff. I said, oh, okay, I think it's this then. I said, well, okay. So he said, um, yeah, I think we're going to do this. What we're going to do is we're going to make a little incision in your wrist and we're going to, I think these two things are stuck together and I'm going to release them. I said, okay. So, he said, it's like you, he said, do you want to, you know, he said, we can do it general anesthetic or local or whatever you want. I said, well, how big's the operation? He said, oh, it's like carpal tunnel. I said, we'll just do it when I'm awake then. It was supposed to be, you know, like a centimeter cut. And then I had surgery and it was a 
six inch gash up my wrist into the palm of my hand uh, where they opened my arm and pulled the all the tendons the ligaments tightened up all the movement in my fingers and then stitched it back up it was one of the most horrific things I've done and now the end result now is I have even less movement in my arm than I've ever had and it's irreversible so I had to retrain left-handed so I write everything with my left I plate with my left I still can't use a knife with my left so I, I have to hold my knife in a very peculiar way I type with my left I text with my left yeah so the right you know it holds things but then if I pick like something heavy up the thumb collapses down and yeah so I I couldn't do the things that I used to be able to do anymore and it became evident and then I would I would have to do services with a bucket of ice because my hand would swell so much if I got stressed it got worse and I was always stressed if I was tired it was worse and I was always tired because I couldn't sleep yeah and it just just it just destroyed me basically so I made the decision to leave my left Monsky's it wasn't just just that there's other other things but that was the main thing I couldn't do what I, what I wanted to do anymore and, and my life goal was to get a star and I couldn't do it I couldn't do the food I wanted to do anymore and I was so lucky that you know the guys that were with me were with me when I could do the things that I could do and they saw me go from that to what what I am now and yeah so I came out the kitchen in May last year with the intent of never going back into a kitchen and then completely depressed me but it's like it's like I'd lost the purpose that I was what I was supposed to be doing it sounds, let's call it a spade a spade, it sounds shit. You've been through the, a ringer or five. Fuck. And that was di- as a direct result of prolonged periods of chronic stress and the impact that, that had on... Yeah, and I, I look back at what I used to do. I mean, I mean, some people, it doesn't affect people, which is great. You know, I wasn't one of them. Um, it, it's an extremely rare condition. And... I've heard of only other one other chef that's got it, but it's in a, it's in a different area of their body. And the, the doctors have said, I've never heard of a chef having it before, but it's called task-specific dystonia, which, um, you know, some people just live with it, which is great. I mean, I have to live with it, but not everybody's, not everybody's like, livelihood depends on it. You know? It can spread, so I have to live with the fact that it can spread around my body. Uh, which obviously panics me and stresses me. I never thought something like that would happen to me. But then I do look back at how I treated myself for so many years. You know, I remember having the conversation with my dad about coming out of the kitchen and he said, um, he, not in so many words, but thank God you t- you're doing it because we've all th- thought about how the hell you're going to carry on doing this for so long, um, the way you're working. And I think that, I think the difference is, and I don't, you know, I don't doubt that lots of people do the same as me, but. I think the th- one of the things that was different about me is I could never switch off, ever, ever, ever switch off. I, I couldn't. I couldn't relax. I couldn't. I was always thinking about work. I think that what I've seen with lots of places I've worked is you see the chefs going in, and the moment they leave the door, they're they're free, they're they're happy, and I think that's a it's an amazing thing. I was never I was never able to do it. I would like think about it all the time, and I wouldn't sleep. And I, if I was on a breakfast shift, I just wouldn't sleep. I'd be pumped up, ready to go. I would, I think, you know, one one of the jobs I would um, finish work at midnight and I'd go and play squash and then finish and then go go back back home. 
Yeah, so it's, um, like I say, you know, lots of people can deal with it. And I thought I could deal with it. It's not the physical stuff. People think the physical stuff is what gets you. It's not, it's the mental stuff. And that's what leaves the lasting damage. I have to live with it. But then I was so depressed when I came out of the kitchen because it was everything I knew. So I had to be around it. And then the opportunity came up, what, I do, what I'm doing now. And it's brilliant because it's um, we do Friday nights where I am now, where we do a tasting menu and we do, you know, so my style of food, but it's 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 fun. And it's what I've learned and my, based my career on. But it's just for one night and we just have some fun with it. I've taken all this stress level out of it. We just have some fun. We just serve some really good produce and have fun with it. Whereas like today, you know, I've sent a wedding for 30 guests. And then on the other side of the kitchen, you've got a little cafe running. And then all this, and then I've got bakery, no, not bakery, so pastry department in the middle that are doing the afternoon teas. But then all, all of this at the same time, we're still prepping for our Friday night thing. But, you know, the guys would be out by six tonight. So I'm very happy. And my, my outside life has thrived because I made this change in my life. So as like where I am at my life now, I'm extremely happy. And I've, I've had amazing, amazing support with, with my arm. I really have. Very lucky. I do not live my life now to get accolades or anything like that. It's just not what I want anymore. Thank you for sharing, mate. It sounds like it's had quite a, I mean, it's a shit situation. And there'll be many other people out there who have also experienced shit things in mm. life. Unfortunately, it's, it's the, excuse the terminology, but it's the hand that we get dealt sometimes. But it sounds like it's been quite profound in terms of actually you're in a much the from the physical side of things aside mentally you're probably in a much better state now because you're not fucking focused on on a star that some unknown person will award you based on what their perception of, of that one night is yeah. it's it's i'm assuming because of the physical element of it now you're you're spending a lot more time mentoring and and developing the skills of your team yeah so i, I have to I, it's a very very strange thing so i know how to do all the things that i used to be able to do but i just can't do them it's really really peculiar so i can't slice an onion i can't whisk a sauce with my right arm i've lost all motion to do it but my brain knows how to do it it's a really really peculiar thing but that does allow me the fact that i can i can still show people and i know i keep saying i'm very lucky but i am the, the you know i've got a team of six in there, four of them have been, have, have been with me for years. They know what I can show them, but to be honest, they're going to learn quicker because they're going to have to do it themselves. But they know that I'm there to support them. You know, I, I've, I've, I've talked about you know Jake a lot, Jake, because he was such a big support to me. He hid it with me. He tried to support me. He tried to do everything with me. But his skill set, when I had to take this step back, boomed. He turned into an incredible chef because he... He did some some his own way. I would advise him in certain ways, but he had to take on a lot of work, and he just did it. And you know, so yeah. And then I've got a couple of guys now with me that one of them's pastry, who's I've known for ten years. He's worked with me for about five. Um, incredible. And I've got another one that's that does all the savory side. But he's when he started with me, he he couldn't even organise his section. Now he runs a kitchen. So. It's amazing, and, and they, they can see the change in me. It's, um, I've never been the same since it all happened, um, in, in good ways and bad ways. You know, I, I don't, you know I, I'm not the same chef as I used to be. I'm not going to be. <laughs> so, <Yeah. you> know. 
Yes, it's funny what you take for granted, isn't it? And then also how we often uh, feel that we are perhaps the the dog's nuts. Well, you know, if it's not us, it's not going to be anyone, you know. And actually what we're doing is we're stunting the growth of our team by not allowing them the, mm-hmm. the opportunity to develop and to, to show what they can do. Have you, since this mindset shift and this circumstance shift, have you spoken to the people who you previously worked with? I mean, you're working with a few of them still now. Have you have you had those conversations about like the way that it used to be and, and how you used to be with them? Yeah, 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 I have, yeah, nearly all of them. Some, I've got a great relationship, but they don't work with me anymore. And I actually had one that, that actually just come back to work with me now who did not have a good time with me. So... But she can see the difference. It's um, that was, you know, at the end of the day, is I, I was so unhappy uh, what I was doing when I thought I was happy, and I put it on other people, which they know, you know, that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm regretful about now. But it's they all talk about it now and how it molded them and how hard it was. But I also, but I, what I think actually saved it was because i did change whilst they worked with me and in, instead of they know it, sorry instead of me just beating them all day or, or you know mentally they know i'll do anything for them anything you know they know that i look after them all this sort of stuff so and you know I've, I've, I've actually got like amazing friendships from it which is, is brilliant yeah i made it i made a point of talking to people that, that worked for me I've got a friend that works for me for years and he went to work at the library now. When he went there, I just sort of said to him, you know, and he, he had a great time. You know, he, he was hard, but he, he was a great chef and he's, um, he's a good friend of mine. But, you know, I, I said to him, you need to promise that you just listen to yourself because don't end up like what happened to me. And, you know, Jake left and, and what happened to me scared the shit out of him. Scared the shit out of him. You know, he point blank said to me, I don't want to end up like you. And good. You know, I don't want him to. You know, he means it in the yeah. nicest way, but I mean it. You know, good. So, you know, it did. It's you know, it did sort of stop people, or hopefully stopped people doing what I did. Yeah, for sure. This conversation resonates quite strongly with me at the moment because it's a lot of the things that you've mentioned are very prominent in my life right at this moment in time. In terms of like, just keep going. Like, mm. you know, you've got to got to keep going. You can't you can't afford to stop. You can't let your team down. You can't let people down. I keep getting told you're going to fuck yourself. <laughs> you are going to absolutely yeah, yeah. fuck yourself. And it's one thing, you know, being able to advise people educationally on, on the great things to do. But it's another thing trying to get your head around that own psychology of, of understanding actually you don't have to wait until the shit really hits the fan before you actually take that time out and start prioritizing your own self-care. And so yeah. um, this conversation has really been a, a prompt reminder for me and Thank you for that. I appreciate that. It's timely. So I've always asked this question on the podcast, but I've actually, this is probably the most profound time I've ever asked it. And I think it would make sense to you. Like if you were to travel back in time to when you were at Marco's or when you were at 11 Madison and to have a conversation with yourself, like a current present self, having a conversation with your past self, what sort of things would you tell yourself as you were sneaking in back of a skyscraper to get the work done ahead of time <laughs> or pulling 21 days straight? What, what advice would you give to yourself? It's really not worth it. You can enjoy your job and love your life with your job without like jeopardizing yourself. 
I never really knew it. I just, when I gave up everything I could to carry on working, it sounds so dramatic, but I did. It's, it's you know, not, and I know that other chefs have as well. In the day, you're just cooking somebody's dinner. Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, I couldn't look at you now and say, I definitely wouldn't do it again the way I did it. Because I don't know if I would. I mean, the experiences and what it gave me, necessarily reputation, but like the the people think highly of me that I've worked with and I and I pride myself on that. But was it worth it for the days that I feel so low because I can't eat, use a knife and fork? No, it's not worth it. Not worth it at all. Maybe I just go back and say, make sure you look after your hands. <laughs> Because you know, <laughs> it's not your fucking hand, so chef. It's your brain. <laughs> it's your brain, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, stop pushing yourself. And and I think this is the what did someone call it the other day when I was chatting to them? They call it a dipitomy, right? This is mm. the fucked up thing about our fantastic industry is that we have to sacrifice relationships and health in the pursuit of the culinary arts, right? Whether, whether that, I mean, specifically true for, for back of house, but you know, we find that in front of house as well in just a slightly different, different way. You know, the, the attention to detail for things like mixology, for example, but there seems to be this, this, and we saw it during COVID, didn't we? I don't want to risk my health. So I have to leave the industry and work in somewhere like retail or, or change my career or, I do mind risking my health, so I'll continue. But I can't have both. I can't work in the the profession as well as have a work-life balance and have a healthy lifestyle, which is something that we're going to have to fucking challenge. We're going to have to prove. Mm. Like, are you familiar with um, Terroir in Southbourne? Mm-hmm. So Jesse, you know, prime example of, of someone who's come from a similar sort of background, you know, three Michelin star background and also has felt different, different impacts, but impacts nevertheless, and seems to have found a, a balance working at decent level, having fun with a team that are having fun around him. You know, it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It has to be like yin yang, that, that balance and that mold of two. And I just, hopefully this conversation has allowed other people who have perhaps busting their gut at this moment in time you can still have professional pride right you can still have pride like it doesn't have to be pride about what other people think of you it can be pride about how you feel about yourself and and how other people feel about you yeah i completely agree i mean i thought i could only ever be proud of what i did if i was had a star or tried to get a star but i i mean i started here so i'm at kimbridge barn now i started here in december and it was a completely different thing for me and uh, i mean not lots of people knew about my arm so a lot of people industry-wise questioned why I was doing it because it's, it's, it's renowned for being an event venue and a wedding venue, a stunning one. But, you know, that, that's what it's renowned for. So why was Matt going there? Why was he doing that? Because that's not what he wants. That's not what he does. But because none of them knew, you know, nobody knew, you know, why, would, why did Matt leave Monsky's? Was he sacked? Was he fired? But why did he leave? And there were lots and lots of questions going around because nobody knew, you know, I came here, and the fact that I can cook pizzas outside, do a wedding venue for 90, do a fire pit feast, do a cafe, do a breakfast, but then also they've given me, because of my background and, and you know what I used to do, and they respect that, the, the, the ideal collection, and they respect that, they, they said to me, let's do something on Friday nights. Let's do a tasting menu. 
And you're not going to come and have a fine dining tasting menu. I don't. It's not about that. It's just about doing a tasting menu that is stuff that I've done in the past, new stuff that we're doing now, and just fun. The chefs serve the food. You know, we just have fun with it. And mm. I remember the opening night, and he's saying, are you stressed? And they said, what have I got to be stressed about? I'm not cooking for critics. I'm not cooking for accolades. I'm cooking food that I genuinely believe in with a team that like working with me, and I love working with them who have the same belief system as I have now, where we care about produce and we care about food and we believe in what we're doing. But we also want to have fun. And then when you do that and you go to the tables and talk to the guests and have a laugh with them, and they ask about food because they're interested, but you can answer everything you want, everything they want to know because you you cooked it. And a front of house team that are fantastic as well. So what have I got to be stressed about with that? Yeah, we just have fun. And that's what I want. Yeah. You know, that's where I'm at now. And so... To the people that sort of that thought, you know, why am I doing this? Well, you know, now they know, but it's not the, the only reason I came here. I came here because I think the property is incredible. So it's, it's it sort of done something for me. And I came here, I thought, wow, you know. And they, they knew about me and they knew about what happened. And I was very honest. I've got nothing to hide. I can do what I can do and I can't do certain things. Unfortunately, that's, that's the way it is. I appreciate you taking the time, energy and courage also to have such a frank and open conversation about this because it should never be taken for granted how difficult it is to speak of stories like this, especially as it's, it's your reality. And it's not something that you know, if you work in hospitality, you're never trained to be able to lead with vulnerability, which is an important thing that we should be trained in. I do appreciate that. I, I think it means not just a lot to me, but our listeners around the globe will hopefully hear this and go, do you know what? I've learned a few bits from this that actually I can take and take and, and change either with myself or my environment. And I think that's really, really powerful and, and big up to you for that. Cause I think that deserves credit. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Just people should need, need to listen to themselves. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. 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 When you're working so hard and you, you feel physically sick and it's in your chest, it's not okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. We're very good at, Keep telling people, I mean, God knows there must, be, there must be a series in this, but trust you, like trust what it is that you feel because that feeling isn't lying to you. And our head goes, actually, no, you know what? Don't, don't be weak. You know, you can keep doing this and, you know, think of the long-term goal, but actually everything in your body and your brain is screaming out to you before that point. And people just need to trust that, trust that feeling. And it's not a sign yeah. of weakness. It's not a sign of being weak or feeble. It, it's it's being human and actually realizing that you're not built of fucking solid granite. <laughs> and yeah, we can yeah. ourselves as much as we want, but you can't change the fact that our biology is that we're human and we are not. Mm -hmm. So, cheers. Thank you, mate. Is there any final things that you wanted our listeners to hear before we shut down for the day? No, 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 no. It's just um, it's the first time I've ever spoken about this ever openly. So. I hope it does. You know, I hope it, I hope it does. Sort of, um, I hope people do listen to it and think, you know, maybe actually, you no, know, maybe I do need to slow down a little bit because it's not worth it. Right. Thank you. Thank you.